today I have the pleasure of speaking with Anish Burma. I met Anish earlier this year. He was organizing the 2021 Undergraduate Big Data Challenge through his role as the Chief Data Officer at STEM Fellowship. At STEM Fellowship, he leads the Data Science Division, directing the organization's data analytics to improve internal operations, and he oversees the organization of the National Big Data Ch Challenge Program, empowering youth to use data science in an interdisciplinary setting. I know that my team and I felt highly motivated to continue our research as a result of our participation and our mentorship from Anish. Anish is also a quantitative anal analyst for OneCubit, where he works to solve financial problems through quantum computing. From 2016 to 2019, Anish served as the executive editor and journal manager of the Science Undergraduate Research Journal at Simon Fraser University. He received his bachelor's of science in chemical physics from Simon Fraser in 2018, and continued to earn his Master's of Science in Theoretical Nuclear Physics from the University of Guelph a few months ago. In all of our past conversations, Anish has consistently led open and fun conversations with notoriously difficult concepts, and I truly can't wait to see what this conversation brings. Thanks for joining me today, Anish. Thank you, Ben, so much for the introduction. I, I, I think you, uh, you, you gave all the, all the highlights of my life, so, so that's good. <laughs> Glad to hear. Yeah, I spent a spent a little while on it, so I'm I'm glad we we got to give you a good introduction there. So I guess generally speaking, um, I'd like to start off with a few just general research questions. So my my first question for you would be, what made you get into research? What like what interests you about research? What's one of the most fascinating things that you know you've encountered with just research in general? Sure. So uh, why I got into research, right? Um, so back when I was in high school, I, when I was uh, trying to figure out what to do with my life, basically, right, I knew that, you know, at the end of the day, what I wanted to do was uh, one, make impact, you know, a very, very broad and vague statement. And two, I wanted to, like, understand at like the most fundamental level, whatever I wanted to pursue, right. And to me, what that manifested as was uh, scientific research. And truly, I don't think that, you know, a person is able to, to fully say that they have a, 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 a mastery or understanding of a particular topic unless they try their hand at uh, putting or pushing the bleeding edge of research further. Um, so that's why I went into research um, at, at sort of a, uh, an interest level. Now, I also want to note for, for your listeners that, uh, you know, even if you're not super hundred uh, percent keen on doing scientific research, I still recommend the experience because I really do think that it's a, a unique challenge that uh, you don't really see in industry otherwise, or or even in your studies. Um, now, to answer your second question, what was the most interesting part about it? Uh, I would say it's just the fact that you know you, you're you're handed a, like a hard problem, right, and you have pretty much free reign to try to figure out how to solve it, right? It's it's it, it's just it's just the it's just problem solving taken to the next level. And what's really nice about it is that you have this this huge support network of academics, right? Uh, whether it be your supervisor, the people in your in your group, your lab, um, you know, your peers, and even academics from you know across the world. In some cases, especially now with the uh, uh, the the hybrid online uh, style. So yeah, that's that's what I feel about uh, research. Well, I feel like that's one of the things that probably has changed about research in the past, like, I say few years, but not like really a few years, the past, like maybe few decades, um, is research shifting from a more 
individual role to a more collaborative role, uh, more interdisciplinary, which is really something that I think through um, STEM fellowship, through the, the big data challenge that you have been trying to promote, which I think is really cool. Um, people working from different disciplines, trying to collaborate to come up with a, I guess, a unified solution to some extent, which is really cool. Um, and I think that's just research in general now, right? Like when I look through a lot of your papers, that's really reflected, you know, working people of different backgrounds of different areas, right? Just coming together to, to get, um, get a paper published, which is really cool. Make some, make some change. Um, so then I guess one of the questions that I asked um, yet yesterday's episode, which I think is a really neat question. Um, what, like, what is the one piece of advice you would give to an undergraduate student who is interested in research um, that is not a cliche answer to some, like, if you know what I mean, like something that's like unique that you think, you know, you can give them that they might not have heard before? Yeah, for sure. Um, well, you know, just just to go over the cliches, right? The the the, the cliches are, are are get good grades, right, and go, and go to office hours. Um, I and I do think that uh, that the grades are important to sort of uh, stand out to an extent, but I don't want to let that discourage people, right? I, I I think that even if you have like a, a C average or something that's not like like a, a perfect four point right? Um, I still absolutely think that you can. Uh, get into a, a research lab, right? Maybe as a volunteer at first, just to you know prove your stuff. Um, but anyway, to to answer your question more directly, right? Uh, the advice that I give to a student that wants to get into uh, an undergraduate student that wants to get into research is is the following, right? So one, figure out like what topic you want to really like like try out first, right? Uh, and and don't feel that you're limited to just studying what you're majoring in. So, for example, right? Maybe, maybe you have like a like a personal interest in um, um, what, what's what's it going? Oh, uh, like a personal interest in like in like theoretical like like comp sci, right? Like just as a as a passing type thing. But your your discipline is in uh, is in like like biology, like or I shouldn't say worst case, but very very different from it, right? Um, I I've absolutely have seen cases where students like with basically no background. Have been able to get into research labs uh, that were completely unrelated to their discipline, and it's entirely, you know, up to them to sort of show their their spirit, their moxie, whatever you want to call it, uh, to the professor, right? Mm -hmm. Being bold and being confident and proving that you, you know, don't necessarily not proving that you know the the, the topic per se, but proving that you're willing to learn and that you have a, a record of completing projects. Like that is the most important thing. Um, now, in terms of direct advice, right? When you when you ask a professor, don't be afraid to ask a professor. When you ask a professor to uh, join their lab, right, or ask about opportunities in their lab, you should, I would say, do the following, right? Whether it's a cold email or just going to them in person, you should say like, "Hey, you know, like, hello, doctor, blah blah blah. Like, like this is my name, um, and I read one of your papers, you know." Make sure you read a couple of their papers beforehand and come to them with a question about their their work, right? And don't feel like and, and don't feel like your question is stupid, right? People love talking about themselves and their work. Like I, I'm no exception. Um, so if you come to them with an interest in what they're doing, it'll 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 reflect well on you. And then if you can continue the conversation from there, 
I think you have a, a good shot at getting uh, at least a volunteer position. For sure. Thank you. Um, I think that's some awesome advice. So I'd like to sort of transition a little bit. Let's uh, let's start off with, um, I guess, one of your more digestible papers, like easier to understand for a layperson. Um, and that was the one I was telling you about, the um, the one that you wrote with uh, Pazinski Hong, a comparison of text sentiment and market sentiment. Um, so first off, um, I guess if you want to just give like a brief summary of it, that could be really cool. It is a rather short paper, I know, but um, yeah. Yeah, sure. So uh, so what that paper described, right, is um, right now people are, are exploring like machine learning methods and, and other like fancy types of computations uh, to find triggers or, or, or trading like signals in the, in the financial data, right? Which, uh, you know, people want to make money, so it's understandable. Um, but, you know, I think people are, are way too uh, rash to, to use these methods without properly understanding them or um, doing their due diligence and comparing the, uh, the efficacy of those methods. So what this paper does is it compares uh, uh, something called natural language processing and uh, a paradigm under that called sentiment analysis, which basically gives you a measure of, um, of how people are feeling or, or the overall like happiness, sadness, positivity, negativity of a particular uh, set of text data, right? So, you know, this can be like a bunch of tweets. This can be like press releases and paragraphs and books and anything like that. Um, now, what we did was we, we calculated our, uh, text sentiment using uh, the Vader framework. And uh, we compared that and uh, the dynamics of that to um, to something called a, a, a market sentiment, where basically what we did was we we looked at the actual finance like hard financial data, so the options and futures, volumes and stuff like that, and prices, um, and we developed sort of a a, a heuristic mo statistical model where we could classify the, the the market anxiety, so how the traders were were betting basically, right? Like, are they betting that the price is gonna go up? Is it gonna go down? How far out, how far in? Um, and this is really a hard comparison of you know just slapping machine learning onto data and just hoping for the best, uh, which is what a lot of people do. And a more, I guess, um, proper, thorough, like data, data heavy analysis. And we were able to show that, you know, uh, like that the text sentiment like lagged quite a bit compared to the price movements, right? It would seem that uh, people were were only showed their fear or their anxiety once prices moved, right? Like after the fact. Whereas when you look at like exactly, but whereas when you look at the hard data, right? It was it was uh, in you know in a lot of cases preceding, right? Which means that you know as a researcher, as a trader, as a, as a whatever you should really do your best to really explore the data and understand what you're looking at as opposed to just, you know, fancying a, a, a sla uh, slapping a fancy algorithm onto it without knowing what it does, basically. For sure. For sure. That makes sense. So, so I guess getting into a few specifics. So in the last episode, we talked about sentiment analysis, which is um, really nice because it kind of ties together a little bit. Um, in terms of... Um, the the MSM the market sentiment meter 
Um, I know that there are various, um, I guess, was it, I don't know how you guys described it, moods, feelings, states. I can't remember yeah. how you would describe yeah. that. Um, and so, yeah. So in terms of um, in terms of that, the the MSM system in general, are you able to sort of describe its function um, as well as like potentially how other researchers could use it going forward? Like like if if someone was interested in you know perhaps something other than um, like other than the research that like uh, how should I phrase this something like where would where would be some room to 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 build using the the MSM I guess yeah no that, that's a fantastic question and I will just quickly add that uh, we are doing academic collaborations meaning uh, we're, we're we're exploring like avenues of research with various academics like um, for example the, the people that know finance they might have heard of uh, the Stevens Institute of Technology where we did a um, a a quantum uh, finance project on the on classification and credit scoring. We did an academic collaboration with um, currently with the, the University College of London, also on financial matters using the MSM data. Anyways, uh, so for for people interested in using this kind of stuff, right? Basically, the the MS the market sentiment meter data provides you like a bunch of like uh, a bunch of calculate like financial metrics that you can that that we calculate, as well as the the sentiment states and our like our novel um, mixture distribution, which tells people how exactly people are betting on the price movements. And the avenues of research here really are exploring, you know, in finance, uh, exploring like how you can optimize and improve uh, a trading algorithm, for example. Um, you can do probe economic events, like, you know, for example, how, how the markets reacted to COVID um, or any economic event. Uh, you can you can do things like explore like how like data analysis type things like these compared to like fear and volatility indexes like like the like the VIX um, and a whole bunch of other things. Now, one other thing that you can explore right is you know the the, the thing that we did like there are, there are alternatives right there 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 are um, fear and greed in indexes too, which basically measure like how how scared. Or, or how like nervous people are, um, which is similar to to what we're doing with the with the sentiment here, with uh, some nuanced differences. And you can explore how exactly you can understand the the dynamics of the financial markets using these two things as benchmarks and comparisons. So uh, that's how you would go about it on the on the finance side. That makes sense. So then, in terms of um, in terms of I guess. A question that I would have would be, is the, to, I guess, to what extent is the um, the MSM applicable to other fields, like aside from finance, where, like, because generally speaking, the market trends can be reflective of other fields, right? And it, I, I think it'd be interesting. I don't know if you have any thoughts on where it could be applied other than finance. Uh, yeah, sure. So. I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go I'm gonna go uh, to to a more abstracted uh, viewpoint, right? So yep. so when you look at like financial dynamics, right? Like the financial markets, there is there is a, a 
a surprisingly huge amount of overlap with fields like physics, with fields like uh, obviously applied mathematics, right, comp sci, because what people are doing, because they're, they're greedy, right, they, they, they want to make money or they want to understand these things, is they, they, they try to find like sophisticated ways of dealing with, um, with financial markets, right? And, you know, interestingly, right, um, a lot of like statistical physics, statistical mechanics can be directly applied to uh, probing and understanding the financial markets. In fact, a lot of physics PhDs end up after grad school, end up going into uh, finance to work in hedge funds like these, so they can apply their math, their math skills and modeling uh, to fields like this. So one really cool sort of um, translation of these ideas is uh, is you can you can design a quantum field theory, right? A quantum field theory uh, in order to describe the the dynamics of of, uh, of futures markets and bonds and stuff like that. So like like something that was designed for for the most fundamental of things, right? Like 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 uh, like quarks, gluons, like protons, neutrons, electrons, right? Can be applied to 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 people betting on things. Which I, I think is pretty cool, um, and insane. of course there, are, yeah, yeah, and and of course there are other like fields like like uh, like fluid dynamics, right? Where um, you know, like people model uh, some like dynamic fluid processes as uh, as stochastic, right? And you know, just because of that like fundamental part of their modeling, they're able to port it over to to finance and you know uh, probe that way. So. I don't know. I, I think there's a there's a lot of overlap in the methods and how you could apply one thing to another. So I'd like to run with that um, that stochastic view um, and sort of pivot a little bit to um, I guess your your thesis um, to some extent. So you wrote your thesis. Um, also, just for the viewers, all the documents, all the papers we're talking about, I'll link them in the in the um, description just so that you know. If you want to read them, they're all there. And also, Anish, I'll link your uh, your contact info if you want, like your LinkedIn or whatever. Um, so, yeah. So, in terms of um, your your um, thesis titled uh, "Quantum Monte Carlo Methods and Its Application to Fermi Liquid Theory," so I guess as you read through, you know, the abstract, the um, introduction. I think the introduction was was written really well. By the way, I I, I really enjoyed that. Um, that was a fun a fun read, um, especially as someone who's like not a physics major. Um, but I guess so. My 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 questions would be, for a for a, a lay person, what? But why don't we start off with? Um, I guess, I guess the two main questions, if you want to answer the type the titular question, are what is quantum Monte Carlo methods, or what are quantum Monte Carlo methods, and what are Fermi, what is Fermi liquid theory? If you want to um, uh, go into those a little bit, and then perhaps we can have a better groundwork to start moving forward through it. Uh, yeah, sure. Okay. So, so, so first, uh, Fermi liquid theory, right? So, the idea here, right, is that uh, you you had a okay. So there 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 was a there was a there was a guy back in the day named uh, Enrico Fermi, right? He's a he's an Italian. I believe physicist. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Sorry, Italian physicist, right? He had, he and he uh, he described like like some quantum particles that have some spin of a half, right? Which is just a property, basically. Um, and he was able to describe 
describe these particles using like fancy quantum mechanical methods and uh, and really get exciting results because uh, you know before this like quantum uh, it didn't mean anything before like the the 1900s and some really smart people were able to to understand that these wacky properties just using some uh, some interesting assumptions. Um, so then, you know, sometime later, uh, a very, 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 very smart uh, man named uh, named Landau, a Russian physicist, uh, he he was he was like he was like, oh, you know, like this is kind of cool. I but I realized that uh, that the calculations to to understand these fundamental particles. Uh, as you add more and more of them, gets super hard. Um, what if I just uh, think about it a little bit and create a whole new framework to make it uh, to make it a lot more tractable and easy? And and this this this, this mad lad, what he did was uh, he 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 sat down in his chair and he's like, oh, this is obvious how you can make this easier. So then he 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 wrote it down in a, in a paper and he was like, this is how you do it. Um, and then and then. Like ten years after the fact, right? Like like a bunch of other smart people try spent a, a bunch of time trying to prove it, him, you know, either right or wrong. And after some time, and a lot of people later, they were like, "Wow, he was right," and he just figured that out while sitting in his armchair. This is ridiculous. He's, he's too smart. Um, so then, you know, That's the awesome. framework was yeah, yeah. So so the framework was laid out how to apply this to electrons, and in and interestingly. Um, we we required a lot more computational sophistication and power in order to apply these to to you know more relevant systems and this is where the the, the quantum monte carlo thing comes in so the quantum the quantum monte carlo method is a way to sort of um address right um address the case when you have like a bunch of these uh these quantum particles interacting with each other, which otherwise is very, very hard to do. And this algorithm makes it so that you can get really accurate, really precise answers uh, in, 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 a, in a short, you know, quote unquote, amount of time. Um, so the idea behind this, uh, this work was to see if you could apply uh, Fermi liquid theory to infinite neutron matter. So a, a ton of neutrons, um, within the Fermi liquid theory framework because it was designed for electrons, but you know, potentially you should be able to apply to, to neutrons as well and understand the properties of things like neutron stars and things that we can't like touch or probe here on Earth. Mm -hmm. So so quant sorry, so quantum um, Monte Carlo methods, how how per if you want to like I mean I know this might get a little more more technical and that's okay. Because um, I think we've laid the groundwork a little bit, but what what are some of the the technicalities of those of the the methodology that you designed or I guess propose? Um, and so, yeah, I, I guess if you just want to take us through that, that could be kind of cool. Um, yeah, sure. So with the um, okay, so with with the quantum Monte Carlo stuff, right? Basically, you have um, you have like your Schrodinger equation, right? So the the equation that tells you all of the 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 dynamics and fundamentals of quantum particles, right? Um, and the the problem with this thing is that it gets really really hard when you add more and more particles to it, right? Because you get you get uh, a bunch of different terms and a bunch of terms that are like impossible to solve analytically and just 
super duper hard to, to solve computationally. So what you have to do instead is apply these approximations. The problem with approximations is that, is that they're approximate. And if you have a bad assumption, then everything that you do is going to be like non-physical or wrong. So well, especially one, when you especially when you're like, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but especially with approximations, when you're looking at things that are as small as um, as small as say, you know, atomic particles, subatomic particles, right? You're you're really um, you, you come up with the issue of of you have such a small margin of error. Right?
for sure I agree. So I guess my, my last question on this paper, and then we can move on um, a little bit, is um, where, where, if you were to, if you were given, you know, funding, opportunity, time, everything to um, uh, resources to, to do this, like an extension of this paper, of, of, your, of your thesis, where would you go? Um, like where, what, what, I guess, you know, most papers have future areas of research. What future area of research would you be interested in, um, in pursuing? Where would you go from here? So, so, so me personally, or, or, or someone that wanted to continue this work? You personally. Uh, okay. uh so I'll, 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 sure. Uh, I'll, I'll answer both because I, I can do them quickly. So, so where, where someone sure. that wanted to continue that work would, would go is, um, they they would well I guess my my reckoning is they would try to rework and add to the framework such that you can account for the electromagnetic interaction because then you could add protons into it which would you know repel each other and that would affect potentially the, the dynamics of things and then you could start to probe things like like heavy nuclei or even uh, neutron stars that are that have that are proton dense basically um, now where where I would like where I am going right now with my own research is I found that uh, that a lot of the methods that I was using, you know, just throughout my whole physics career, right, um, involved a lot of like data science methods as well as like um, understanding of stochastic systems, right, like statistical systems, uh, random systems, you, you could call it. Uh, and I found that, you know, the thing with physics or at least nuclear physics is that, is that all you sometimes you have to wait like a decade or more to, to sort of experimentally verify your theoretical results which you know is, is, a, is a long time right and you know just as an example uh when it came to the to the higgs boson right um like like the guy behind it he, he came up with with the with a theory back in like the 80s or 90s right and that wasn't verified until like like, like 2010 or something like that so that's like 20, 30 years waiting uh, to, to verify that, which is, you know, uh, quite hard to, to, I guess, deal with. And for me, I wanted to be able to apply like that, like those tools and those techniques, right, um, to something that I could sort of verify more readily. And for me, I, I was happy to discover that uh, there was quite a, a happy marriage between physics and uh, the financial markets, right? I was able to take all the methods that I was doing like in physics, like just like all, almost literally all, like like most of the methods that I was using in physics and directly apply them to the financial markets and have like this this sort of like almost instant verification, right? Uh, because there's so much data that's like live and like like from like historical that you could like test your 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 theory on and be like, oh my god, it worked, or like, oh my god, it didn't work. Let's let's do let's let's think about it some more. So that's that's where i decided to take it and uh, i'm sorry and just to quickly add on to that um like because of my deep interest in physics it, like i was able to like explore the idea of like combining quantum computers of all things right with uh with finance right applying like something else in a different field of physics research right uh to something that was like completely out of my um domain of expertise at the time so or when I first started, which was really cool. And I think uh, physics was the thing that opened up the, the path for me to be able to do that. 
That's awesome. Thank you. So moving on to your your other, I guess, I, I feel like from, from what I read, it, it appears that you have, I would suggest two major papers, your thesis and then this one. Is that is that a fair thing to say? Uh, so, so, so when you say this one, you're, you're referring to my, uh, my undergraduate one, right? The 2017 paper? Yeah, with um, Dr. Starosta. Yeah, yeah, I, I'd argue. Um, so, you know, truly, I, I think out of my, all my physics stuff, my the 2017 one was probably my, my personal favorite, just because it was, I don't know, mm -hmm. it, 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 was like a, it was like a pretty cool, like, like marriage between the theory and the experiment. Um, so, you know, before I, I continue, I'll, I'll let you ask your question. Sure. So um, just so for, for the viewers, the title of this paper is um, Collective and Single Particle Degrees of Freedom in Rotating Nuclei. So this was written with Anish and um, Christoph, Dr. Christoph Starosta. Um, I'll, again, put a, a link in the description for that. Um, so in terms of, uh, I, I guess, generally speaking, it sounded like you had some some interesting thoughts. If you want to, um, you know, take, I, it's, a, it's a dense paper. If you want to take, like, you know, some time and just uh, walk through the thought process and the just a general, I guess, summation of the of the paper that could be that would be useful. Sure. Um, okay. So, so at atoms are made up of these things called nuclei, right? And you're taught in, in high school and, and even early undergraduate, right? That uh, honestly, like most of undergraduate, that excuse me, nuclei are these like the, these perfect like like tiny tiny like spheres dots. Right. It turns out that it's that's not really true. Right. Um, like like nuclei can take on like like all sorts of like these mathematical shapes. Right. They they, they can be uh, they can be like described as spheres, ellipsoids, like like football shapes. Right. Um, like gourds, like octopoles, um, and and so on and so forth. And you know because of that, right. The, the, the theories that you apply and develop sort of have to, I guess, to be accurate for certain regions of the nuclear chart is you have to account for these things. And the, and one of the, the most like common deformed nuclear shapes is like that football shape, the ellipsoid. So what you do then is you go like, okay, well, like how, how can I like incorporate this into my calculations? And there are a whole bunch of different ways, right? One popular way is called the um, the rotor model, where you basically uh, you you take the nucleus as sort of a uh, a mean field, and then you uh, so it, like an like like a like a fancy average basically, and you describe it as as that football shape, and then you look at the dynamics of that football shape with some uh, some quantum like like spe specifications applied to it, and really interestingly, right. Is that in some nuclei that like fit this football shape, right? Uh, it, it it matches really, 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 really well, like the theoretical calculations that you get, right? Like like um, like all, all, almost perfectly. You can see examples of this if you just look up like uh, uh, rotor model or, or or ellipsoidal nuclei, right? Um, so so that's that's one thing, but you know. Not every like ellipsoidal nucleus can be described perfectly by just averaging things out, right? Like there there are like bulk properties of the nucleus, 
as well as like these single particle like properties that can really affect the interactions of things. So in order to encapsulate both the bulk properties and like the 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 single particle degrees of freedom, you you want to try to combine the two somehow, and that's what we did in this paper. So we we um we took a rotor, right, like that that bulk average, but we we added the uh, the nuance to it where we, we we take two two particles out of that out of that bulk and treat them as their own individual things. Um, and then we we made it so that those two things could, could hit each other, right? Interact with each other through what's called a delta force, and uh, and 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 see like what the model showed and whether or not this was like a good description and a good predictor of uh, of certain nuclei and their properties. And we were able to show that uh, that this indeed like for 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 a bunch of different nuclei is is pretty good at repl one replicating the results. And because this is um, because this this is a model that we can function. Uh, pardon me. This is a a model that we can like calculate as a function of nuclear spin. It means that we can predict properties of the nucleus. We can predict energy. We can predict g factor. We can predict like a whole bunch of things and uh, like quadrupole moment. And that is uh, that's the paper. We 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 made this model. We show that it can be applied to a bunch of nuclei, and we can predict the properties. Of uh, nuclei to be verified in by experiments. So, just a question that comes to my mind, because I mean, like I said, I come from this from a more, I guess, um, abstract or, I guess, pure mathematical side of things, um, mm -hmm. or I guess going into pure mathematical. I haven't started yet, but you know, um, looking like thinking a lot deeply about those sorts of topics and. My question, the thing that comes to mind, now I, I am familiar with the, the whole notion that, you know, um, nuclei aren't just dots, right, in, in space. They're, 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 you know, like not only are they, are they shaped, but they're also, you know, like, uh, or to some extent average shaped, but they're also moving, right? Which has a lot of, you know, anyone who's ever done, um, you know, like mechanics, you know, physics mechanics is like, you know, you know how complicated that can be, right? Um, so I think, I think that, um, yeah, I, I think that, like, generally speaking, it, it, it makes sense. But also, what's interesting to me is that the fact that nuclei aren't symmetrical perfectly to some extent, right? The fact mm -hmm. that they aren't, like, you you would imagine, right? You would imagine to the to the extent that, that things on the large scale in our in our universe tend to be fairly symmetric at least to my understanding um when you visualize at least they, they tend to be fairly symmetric um it's interesting that at the small scale they aren't you know and i i don't know if you have any thoughts on that or any um how that that notion connects to your to what we were talking about but i'd love to hear what your thoughts are yeah, sure. So, so, so symmetry is an interesting thing, right? Um, like, like on, okay. So, even even in the in like a macro scale, right? The things that you and I can see, I'd argue that um, that you know just about nothing is is perfectly symmetric, right? Um, like if if you if you look at like 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 the like the smoothest like like metal ball, I don't know, like or it's like like a glass sphere, right? Even that isn't like perfect perfectly symmetrical because if you look at like the 
like the smaller like I guess um shape of it, right? You'll 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 always find like cracks or or, or little divots or things like that, right? Which breaks the symmetry of things. Um and on the quantum side of things, right? Like the the most fundamental side of things, you can have um like like electrons, right? Like these fundamental things. Like you can describe them as as particles and waves. And you know, you could argue that those have a have like a, a spatial symmetry to them, right? Um but the interesting thing is that like like symmetry in like 3D, it means like like spatial symmetry, right? Like like I can uh I don't have anything spherical on me actually, which is kind of funny. Um <laughs> But like, like, like you can take a ball, right? And then you're like, okay, that's that's symmetric, right? Because like, if I split down the half and mirror it, right? Or if I rotate it, it looks the same, right? Um, but when you get to the to the quantum level of things, right? Like spatial, like it means something different, right? Because like these these things at at this really tiny level can be described as particles and waves. And what that means is that you know they don't they don't have like necessarily a really defined shape, right? They have a they, they they have a probabilistic shape, which is another like can of worms to open up, um, which is really cool actually. But uh, you know what I want to say is that at the quantum level, like symmetry does mean something different, right? Like you can have spatial symmetries, you can have like time reversal symmetries, you can have um, uh, well, like I, I'm 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 spacing out here, but but like you can have a bunch of other symmetries too, um, and the and the symmetry breaking is the actual interesting thing, right? Because like at the quantum level, if you had like, like you can't have like spatial symmetry, right? Like if I rotate an electron, it's still an electron, right? It, it looks, it looks quote unquote identical. Like no matter how you calculate it, it looks identical. But when you have like these, uh, like for example, like the, the ellipsoidal nuclei that it describes about, right? If I rotate it, right? Like it, it, like if I rotate it along the long axis, you know, sure, it might look the same. But if I, if I do this, right? If I rotate it like that, obviously I can see yeah. a change, right? And th that's reflected in a bunch of its quantum properties. And that, um, and you can find like symmetry breaking in those properties, deviations from what you expect from the norm. And that tells you about the fundamental nature of uh, whatever you're looking at. So symmetry breaking is actually really cool. And, it, and the, the interesting thing I'd argue within, um, within the quantum, I guess, domain. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Um, I think symmetry is just like, so fascinating breaking of symmetry is so fascinating um in in it like you see it everywhere right in so many fields but um i guess um perhaps one thing that would like we'll we'll, we'll do one more um on this paper so um what what is the i, I don't want to mispronounce it john yon teller effect Oh yeah, yeah, sure. So, so, and, so the, and the if you were to describe that to like, if you were able to describe that to a um, someone at a at an undergraduate level, or you know, someone who's taking you know a few chemistry classes or a few physics classes, right, that kind of stuff. Sure, sure. So, 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 so the Jan Teller effect, uh, which you know, honestly, I, I might have been pronouncing wrong for 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 all these years. Um, it's it's <laughs> it, it, it's it's the it's the description of um, of why you can you have uh like spontaneous symmetry breaking in in chem in molecules like chemistry and you know what does that mean right well you know uh interestingly right like like molecules aren't perfectly symmetric either right like you know sometimes you can expect them to look um 
like like a like a pyramid shape, right? But you'll notice that like when you actually look at the the structure of the molecule for experiments, you're like, huh, this is weird. Uh, this isn't like perfectly symmetric. These bonds are shorter than that one for like no apparent reason. And um, Jan, like Jan Keller, Jan and Keller, they were able to be like, well, you know, really, right? If we look at this from a physical perspective, we know that nature wants to be in the most energetically favorable position, right? Like that's just how nature works, right? You want to be at the lowest energy, the most stable, or or, or what have you. Um, and and reality will will. will I shouldn't say bent to this, but reality will make it such that like like you can do wacky things in order to get to the to the most like um, energetically like stable or lowest energy like state. And one of the ways of doing this is like literally just like like changing the shape of molecules, right? Like 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 the molecule like the molecule knows knows is the wrong word. Like the molecules like like I want to be I want to be like calm. I want to be in the lowest possible energy. I'm just going to stretch out until I can do that. Um, so it does that spontaneously. And this is really apparent and really important uh, thing in inorganic chemistry and organic chemistry, honestly, uh, which for sure, if you, if you study chemistry, you'll, you'll, you'll encounter. Um, so that's what the Jan Teller effect was. And the idea was to apply that concept of spontaneous symmetry breaking to nuclei. And in the paper, we see that, you know, after modeling and stuff like that, we see the um, we see we we see the symmetry breaking and this change in the uh, in the properties of the nucleus as you like go higher and higher in spin. You have pair breaking or and or what some call uh, back bending. A bunch of different terms for it. Makes sense. So so then um, I guess let's uh, let's let's pivot because there's a there's a lot in that paper and folks can read it if they're interested. Um, so I guess one question that I have for you, just to kind of start wrapping things up here, um, what's, uh, what was the most interesting result you've ever had from any of your research? Like what was something that you, you, you know, whether you did the, did the calculations, did the analysis and you were like, huh, that's not what I expected. Have you encountered that? And, and uh, I'd love to hear about it. Yeah, sure. So, so it, it's happened a bunch of times, right? Uh, uh, and 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 I say that like not to brag because it's gonna elaborate a bit, right? I've seen that a ton because I was wrong, right? I, I calculated something wrong, and I was like, that doesn't make sense. That, and then I was like, of course it doesn't make sense. I I, I messed up the calculation somewhere. Um, like like one and like one example of that that like just like like destroyed me at the, at the time. It, so what happened was like, I was spending like like two weeks on trying to make something work, right? And I finally got like the, like the, I thought like the math to work and the code to run. And I was like, oh my God, this is exciting. Let's see what it plots, right? And, uh, oh, sorry, I just gotta plug in my laptop quickly. Um, no problem. Right. Okay, perfect, uh, right. Right, and and when I plotted it, right, I expected like, or what I wanted was like the plot to look like straight line and then up like that, right, like straight line diagonal. Mm -hmm. And what ended up happening was I got uh, I got straight line, right, and then it was like bam, like downwards. And I was like, I was like, okay, okay, either this means that like that I've I've I've, I've discovered 
like a, a fundamental break in physics and I'm about to win the Nobel Prize, or or I made a mistake in my math, right? And you know, oftentimes when doing research, right, you're gonna come across like a lot of moments like these where you where you make a mistake and you get like this this thing that just doesn't make sense, um, and you learn to sort of sanity check. Uh, now, in terms of results that like were interesting, is actually in that in that 2017 paper, right? So um, we we described the symmetry breaking through this model, right? And the, and we found that um, for certain nuclei, right, for certain uh, uh, configurations, that like that there is a really really interesting and apparent like dynamics of the g factor, um, and the g factor is is basically like uh, a thing that you can measure that that quantifies like 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 the rotation in a, in an electromagnetic field of a, of a particle, right? Like that's the, I think the simplest way to like abstract or just describe it. And it, it was it was basically just like it was it was like not doing anything until you reached like like a a dynamic enough like part of the uh, of like of of the a fast enough rotation basically for the nucleus and then all of a sudden it just it, it just like shot up and then it started to like like trend back downwards and what this meant was that there was like a really really like like an interesting like way of measuring this and sort of verifying things that we were doing and understanding the properties of the nucleus like through experiment um and you know it hasn't like experimentally like just because of where the hardware is right now it hasn't been possible to measure but once it is possible to measure, you should see that. And this super simple, uh, like model that that anyone can use effectively, right, is able to describe that. And if we are able to verify that, it it has like a, a lot of, I guess, good implications for how you can um, probe like nuclei within this specific region. That makes sense. So, I guess. Um... I guess yeah, we can we can wrap up. So, do you have any other final thoughts that you would want to share with anyone? Any um, yeah, tips sure, sure. or any? Yeah, go ahead. Sure. So, so, uh, so tips for like high school students, right? Is and undergrads or, or wherever you are in your career is like like do not do not be afraid of sounding stupid or or or, or feeling like you're not good enough to uh, pursue something. Like if if you have confidence and you have you know, even the slightest bit of motivation, right? You can you can do amazing things, right? The only difference between, I guess, like you and the person that you look up to, right, is that they like mustered up the courage to take that first step, right? And I think that you know now is probably the the best time thus far in history to be able to learn and do research, right? So I I implore you to just try doing something that you know that's slightly out of your comfort zone. Um, because you can and will do great things. Awesome. That was very well put. Well, Thank you. thanks for joining me today, Anish. Um, and thanks everyone for watching. That was a really awesome conversation. Definitely exceeded my expectations. So thank you. Thank awesome. you so much.